This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Fermanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. You're listening to the full episode of Urban Ecologies with Gavin Van Horn. Hello and greetings. This week, we're talking about cities and nature. As always, I'll be adding a life world slant to the conversation, focusing on how those who dwell in urban settings can engage with the teeming and vivid animal world right on their doorsteps. I felt that we needed to have an episode about cities here on the show because it's been estimated that by 2050, over two-thirds of the world's population will be living in urban areas. That statistic, for me, foretells a hungry escalation of urban spread and... The way I see it, we can either choose to integrate more nature into these mega agglomerations, or we can start to say goodbye to generations of little humans who have had any contact with something other than the human species. That's to say, anything that is not human-made, synthetic, addictively technologized, or hyper-controlled. How do you think that anyone's imagination can roam wild and roam free and entangle with other intelligences if only high-rises and concrete rivers are in sight, if the world is increasingly digitized and screen-captured. And the sad part of this is that this nature deprivation systematically affects lower-income families, creating a damaging feedback loop that hits hardest at those who are already struggling to keep pace. And yet, cities are also beautiful, Cities are these wonderfully complex organisms, and they are also social incubators that provide dazzling connectivity and innovation due to the alchemic bumping up of so many human molecules. And so we must ask ourselves the questions, can cities be the best of both worlds? Can they provide both high social connectivity amongst human beings and amongst non-human beings? Can we design cities from the perspective and the life worlds of other species? And by the way, where does the city even begin? How can animals disrupt our associations of what cities are? Gavin Van Horn gets right into this topic. Gavin is the executive editor of the Center for Humans and Nature Press and is the author of two books, City Creatures, Animal Encounters in the Chicago Wilderness and The Way of the Coyote, Shared Journeys in the Urban Wilds. His story teaches us a potent medicine for urban alienation, which involves honing our awareness to species like coyotes, robins, pollinators, and degraded urban forests. We talk about everyday intimacies, wild mutual gazes, the resplendence of pigeon feathers, and examples of mutual healing that occur when people repair urban lands and make nature whole. Here is Gavin Van Horn today on Life Worlds.
Gavin, thank you so much for joining us this morning on Life Worlds. We're speaking from, I think, similar places on the coast, right? You're down in South California, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I mean, I think they like to call it the Central Coast because it's between San Francisco and Los Angeles. They feel they're distinct from either of those larger areas or Southern California more generally. But yeah, officially it's Southern California. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny how people stake out their identities. What I loved about so much of your writing and your book is that you use the term life worlds inside of your writing, which is great because obviously this is the life worlds podcast. And it's such an interesting word, no, because everyone interprets it in their own way and form. And you can go back to like the German philosophy of it, or you can just use it in the way that I'm using on the show, which is that every organism or form of life has its own unique lived experience of the world. And the agglomeration of all of those little universes make up a larger life world. And in particular, you are quite the expert on the life worlds of cities and urban settings, amongst many other things, because you're also very much often outdoor in the land. But today we're going to talk about urban areas and how those people who live in cities who often feel like they're not close to nature are actually very close to other than human ways of being. And you can have these animal encounters in what you've called the urban wilds, which I really love. I'd like to start by asking you, what brought you to this understanding that urban areas can be full of natural life? Like when was the first time that that became something that was so marked for you that you actually wrote books about it and have given so many talks about it? What was your urban initiation, I guess you would say, into that form of wilderness? <laughs> That's a good question because I certainly wasn't for the first, I'd say, three decades of my life, and I'm 47 now, uh, the urban environment or cities generally weren't places I thought of as being attractive in the sense of a natural wildness that they contained or exuded or that threaded its way through urban areas. Certainly, you can acknowledge that there are parks and that there are different green spaces, but those seemed relatively constrained and contained, you know, to me, and not, quote unquote, truly wild, domesticated, if you would. And so, you know, when I thought of going out and having the big, off-filled, sublime, or solitude-seeking natural experience, Urban areas weren't what would have popped to mind for me. And in some ways, that's just representative, I think, of a conventional narrative that is widespread in the United States and in other parts of the world, that urban areas are less than worthy of our attention when it comes to nature, when it comes to the life worlds of others besides humans. That's something that was disrupted for me when I moved to the Chicago area, what I call and what some others call Chicago land, representing more than just the city, but the surrounding greenbelt forests and the uh, exurbs and other parts of Chicago. The footprint of Chicago is a large footprint (laughs) when it comes to landscape. But when I moved to Chicago, I knew that there were a lot of people there working on environmental issues. I, I knew that there's an organization there called Chicago Wilderness, which already puts those terms together in an interesting juxtaposition, a provocative way, like wilderness, Chicago, what, you know. But at the time I arrived, I think there were over 300 organizations that were under that umbrella of Chicago wilderness. These were government, non-government, nonprofits, different social organizations. 
And they were all gathered together around this vision of a Chicago region and the flourishing of the natural world and the flourishing of humans alongside those natural spaces. That certainly preceded me, and I knew about that. But it wasn't until I really had my feet on the ground that it came home to me in a very personal way. Because once I moved to that area, I needed to orient myself. And I would do this with any area, rural, urban, whatever. But to me, it's a matter of getting to know my more than human kin or my other than human kin, the non-human neighbors that share any place with me. What are their stories? How do they move through this area? How have they adapted to and survived and even thrived in some cases in an urban environment like Chicago? So as I got to know those stories, it really opened up my mind to what a city can be and the possibilities for a city when it comes to being full of wildness, full of these other stories that stretch not only around us in space, but stretch in time as well. You know, there's history there. There's a mythology, if you will, underneath the pavement of what that place is, bioregionally speaking. And those creatures, including human creatures, continue to carry on those stories. And so it became important for me to begin to physically, mentally, emotionally, maybe even spiritually, if you want, to weave my story into the story of those other stories that had their own trails through that landscape. And so it sounds like it's something for you that's beyond parks and beyond the occasional tree that you have on the sidewalk. What is urban wildlife and nature for you then, now that you've seen these kind of this lattice of other lives overlaid over a city? How would you describe what it even is to perceive nature in a city? Is it just noticing the squirrels around or is there something a little bit deeper to that? Well, it can be. And maybe that's where it begins. I'm thinking of a woman I wrote about in the book, The Way of Coyote. Her name is Sherry Williams. And for her, it began with pigeons. You know, pigeons are this disparaged bird. I mean, some people love them and some people develop relationships with them. But, you know, for city officials, they're a nuisance and they poop everywhere. They're ubiquitous. Their familiarity sort of breeds contempt, you know. But aesthetically, I mean, if you take time to watch pigeons, the iridescence of their feathers, the way that they coo and behave with one another, I mean, they're fascinating. And so this woman, Sherry Williams, she became friends to the pigeons around her, which led her to other types of animals. And eventually, she helped found with the help of Audubon, a migratory bird preserve in her very densely populated urban home of the Pullman neighborhood. And that's an example of someone for whom, like, it doesn't start with the awe-inducing experience. It doesn't start with somehow having an epiphany. It starts with these everyday intimacies that then build or can build our capacity for care, our capacity for extending our empathic imagination into other spaces that we're a part of and beginning to see not what is lacking, but what is there already and what could be there. That's the imaginative part. If we were to build in such a way as to accommodate species that are other than human. I really like this phrase that you used in your book, the mutual gaze, and that cities are full of other eyes watching our behavior, not just human eyes. So yeah, it could be the eyes of a pigeon, but it could be all of these other forms of life that are gazing at us. And 
in a way, you had this beautiful part of, of your book where you spoke about when you gaze into an eye of another creature, something deeply transcendent happens. And so we're moving in these cities and there's these other eyes and these other forms of life watching us and being watched. How do people look for wildness in a city? Like what are those practices of connection that people can cultivate? Well, I guess I would start with what's familiar to most people. If you're going to give your care to another person, you're going to start with your presence and your openness to hearing from them. You know, you lean in, you show your interest, you allow them the space to speak or to engage with them. So the simple practice of presence, I think, is kind of fundamental to all of this. So when you stop moving through an urban landscape as though it's just backdrop or scenery to human activity, and you recognize, I'll go back to the word that you started this with, life world, that this is a, an exuberant tangle of life that is sometimes fighting for space, but sometimes is just thriving in between and above and below and everywhere. And so as we become aware of that, that this is a living space, a latticework, as you said, the green ways and blue ways, then we begin to familiarize ourselves with whether it's a local neighborhood or backyards, a larger chunk of an urban area, the shoreline. There are plenty of places, but we begin to recognize. For me, it was the Chicago River became a real magnet, a real draw for me because water tends to concentrate other forms of life. You know, we all need water. And so the birds that would come there, including great blue herons and black crowned night herons and the turtles, the amphibians, the frogs, the dragonflies, the minks, the beavers, all these different recovering, in some cases, species coming back to the river, coming back to this area that had been so polluted, but is now being cleansed, you know, the very lifeblood of the city, in a way. So being drawn to those concentrated areas of life, I think you begin to understand where other animals are using and living and traveling through urban areas. So your senses become more attuned to where those intersections of presence can happen. But that said, I probably would say that that can happen anywhere. You know, an example of sitting on a balcony of an apartment with a potted plant, you know, you probably are going to get bees or butterflies visiting that plant. The soil itself contains a multitude of mites and biotic soil organisms of all different types, sometimes not visible to the naked eye. But again, if it's a matter of being present, there is wildness there as well, from the micro to the macro. And you spoke about, well, earlier spoke about pigeons, um, and I want to return to Sherry's story. And in your book, you speak about birds and how for you, bird language was a really, really fascinating doorway. You wrote in your book about John Young. I've done a workshop with him. And it's so interesting how for most of our lives, if we're not trained in that, it's just birds singing. And then actually when you can get into birds, it's like they have all these different calls and they can indicate different things. And because birds are often very ubiquitous in cities, what was it about birds? And yeah, you wrote about Robin in particular, but what is it about birds that can be helpful as that kind of doorway in? Well, as you said, maybe for a lot of us, bird calls, bird song is maybe a pleasant thing in the backdrop of our lives that we don't 
necessarily tune into, but it was kind of revelatory for me to realize that there were all these different types of vocalizations, as they're sometimes called, that feels a little too objectifying to me. Um, I'll call it language. All these different syntaxes and grammars that were being used among birds. And robins I use because they're so present uh, in most urban spaces. They're an easy bird to kind of tune into. They're not just there during fall or spring migration. They're there year-round. And so they're a constant companion in urban environments. And so maybe an easy one to start getting to know. And like anything, the more you tune in, the more you start to understand subtleties and nuances of, of body language, of their songs, of their calls when they're panicked or when they're aware of danger or when they're just doing what are called contact calls, you know, which are, you know, I'm over here. Okay, I'm over here. <laughs> I'm over here. Okay, I'm still here. So for me, that was really important because it, it kind of shattered the illusion that humans were the only ones that were speaking or the only ones that had a communicative language. You know, maybe I thought about birds as communicating with one another previously, but I didn't think that I could understand it, that that was somehow walled off from me. But once you start tuning in, it's certainly possible. And people like John Young are expert at it, you know, of knowing what's going on, not just among the birds, what they're communicating about the whole environment that they're in. You can pick up a ton of information from what they're doing and what they're saying. So I guess it was just another really important step for me or example for me of this is not confined to human beings, language, or, you know, you mentioned eye-to-eye encounters before, you know, other animals regarding us is another way in which it shatters that illusion that we are somehow separate or apart or the only subjects in a world full of what we often think of as objects, you know, and no, there are subjects of a life all around us. Thomas Perry calls a communion of subjects and having our gaze returned or hearing the languages of other species is a reminder that we're not alone, that we are not a species that is apart from other species' stories, that we're not the only ones telling stories about them, that they're also telling stories to each other about us. <laughs> yeah. I had a very funny experience happen to me a while ago. I was hiking in the woods, but then I was just sitting quietly and there was a lot of bird calls happening and bird communication. And then I heard these two other human hikers coming along and I heard their like conversation. And I'd been so tuned into the birds that when I heard the humans speaking, and it was my language, it was English, but it just sounded like two animals communicating to each other in the way that we can imagine how animals do. And all of a sudden it was like, I was a bird and I was hearing these two humans babbling and I'm like, oh my God, this is what humans sound like. Or you know when you're in an airport and there's so much noise that you can't make out any individual thing and you kind of rise above it and you're like, oh, this is the constant babble that other animals are hearing from us. And so when I tune into bird language, especially in a city, I always try and think like, well, this is what they sound like to us, but what do we sound like to them? You know, and yeah. and it becomes kind of trippy because you're like, gosh, we don't, it doesn't actually sound that good. <laughs> you know, that <laughs> I know exactly what you mean because oftentimes we're really loud, right? We're walking along, we're talking really loud, we're stomping through. And that's why I picked that line, John Young's work of soften your presence in the world if you want to learn what others are saying. And that works with birds, but it's also kind of a good philosophical 
foundation, if you will. <laughs> like, what if our cultures soften their presence in the world? Cities would look a lot different. I mean, talk about noise pollution and what would it look like to soften our presence? And that allows the space for others to exist. Yeah. And as you said before, like the world is full of people and only some of them are human, right? That sort of famous line. In this talk that you gave, you spoke about the difference in an urban setting of passive kinship and active kinship. And so passive kinship, I believe, was what you described before, which is giving your full presence, being incredibly curious, observing keenly. And passive isn't a bad thing because most people aren't even doing it, right? You can passively just observe and let life move through you. And that's very dignified. Mm. And in your example of of Sherry, what she started doing was active kinship, which is creating more habitats for that kinning process, right? And creating more collaborative spaces so that humans and more than humans can be somewhere together. And I'd love to get into some of these. And the reason why is because when we think about how we can coexist better with other creatures and enter their life worlds and participate, it is that participation that brings us really close and We don't exactly know what it's like to be a coyote or a fox or a bee in an urban setting, but we can create more spaces where we can start to perceive what it might be to see the world through their eyes. And so you've given examples in your work about pollinator pathways and these adopted street corners and these small micro rewilding acts, because sometimes like climate and crisis can be so paralyzing that for most people, massive actions are out of reach. So it's these small actions that can bring that active kinship and that can create an encounter with more than human forms of life that people don't actually know is instantly available for them. So I really want to dig in some examples that you shared and you shared Sherry creating these migratory routes. And in your book, you shared this organization that sounded amazing called Green Corps, who are transforming, I'm quoting from your book, transforming parts of Chicago by increasing the resiliency of urban lands. Maybe you can speak a little bit to how restoring an ecology in a city and the examples that you've come across has really helped to heal humans and then how that has helped to heal their relationship with nature and it becomes like a virtuous cycle. So maybe Green Course would be an interesting example or the Urban Biodiversity Monitoring Project that you also wrote about, but I find these examples really interesting. Yeah, I really like the way you put that as a virtuous cycle. It's like positive feedback, right? It's positive forcing, I think, is the term that's often used in science and climate science. And I think that that it's a really important thing to emphasize because it's not simply a matter of self-abnegation, you know, of self-sacrifice. We are healed as we heal. And I think that most people that, say, for instance, are social workers, probably their main motivation for doing it. There's the feeling of bringing healing and wholeness to the lives of others that redounds back to us. And that makes total sense. We're just talking about relationships here. So, you know, if we have a relationship with a landscape and we are invested in that landscape and it's healing, and by healing, I guess I should specify because not everybody might know exactly what I'm after when I'm talking about that. But they might think of beautification or something like that. And that certainly can be a part of it. But a lot of times in the Chicago region, in the state of Illinois, 99.9% plus of the prairies that were historically there are gone. They've been covered up by pavement through mass agriculture, most of which is monoculture. The prairies have been dug up and replanted in this rich and fertile soil for those purposes. So in an urban environment, 
where there are these patches, these remnants in some cases of prairie land in the corners of cemeteries and parks along river embankments. Um, there's a lot of people who have turned their attention toward what's called restoration, ecological restoration, which usually means, you know, for plants that have become invasive in the area that are choking everything else out or creating problems for the plants that were historically native in those places, it usually involves a lot of weeding, a lot of sweat intensive work to try to allow that seed bank that's there to once again see the light of day. And when you tend to the plants like that, you're often also tending by proxy to the animals that would use those plants for food sources and for other purposes. So you're restoring the biodiversity of an area, the wildness of an area. Where Green Corps comes in is it's a program through the city of Chicago that's done a lot of amazing work. And the people who serve in Green Corps are often ex-felons, people who have been in the prison system and then need work when they get out of prison. And Green Corps is one option among like a suite of different things that people can put their efforts into and get paid for. And so the city then has different crews that move about and have different projects throughout usually the city of Chicago park system, but further afield as well. So I interviewed a few people to hear about their experience with Green Corps. And that was what really emerged clearly right off the bat. You know, a thematic thread was people who in some cases had lived in Chicago all their lives, but had never thought of the urban forest or urban prairie as anything but empty space or space to avoid. People were sometimes afraid of those areas and what could go on there, but certainly weren't thought of as places that were welcoming or inviting or for them. And through the experience of practicing this ecological restoration, a lot of these Green Corps crew members, they get to know the trees. I mean, down to the Latin binomials, you know, they get to know the seasonality of the plant life in an urban region like Chicago. They get to participate bodily in the restoration of the biodiversity of their neighborhoods sometimes. And it seems to ripple out into their communities, into their relationships, their interpersonal relationships. You know, some people describe to me becoming not a local hero is probably too strong, but, you know, people being really curious about what they're doing. Why are you out there? What's going on? And then in turn, you know, other people that were part of the Green Corps crew would say, now I come to these places when I need a moment to get outside of my head. You know, I come and sit by this tree. I come and sit at this river, this urban stream, you know, and I feel peace. I heard that word again and again, peace. It brings me peace. And I think that that's a really good reflection of the way that coming from a life where there's maybe a lot of damage, maybe a lot of family dysfunction that led to some bad choices, they've chosen a different path now that's leading to a greater sense of belonging in a landscape, not just a human landscape, but a more than human landscape. That's a little bit of the Green Corps story. Of course, there's much more to it than that. But I think you're right to bring it up as an example of where, you know, healing a landscape heals us. I, I think that it's such a beautiful story because 
it does get to the core of something important, which is the difference between being a passive observer and a participant. And I think that a lot of people are encouraged to get out into the woods or, you know, to do different nature meditation things or, you know, but I don't know if the people who you spoke with at Green Corps would have been as connected and as moved and as healed if they hadn't been actively working the land or participating in its healing. And it has an important lesson there, you know, and, and you've written like sometimes our own wholeness depends on the nature we attempt to make whole. And I think there's an encouragement there for people to not just observe and take it in, but to be participants in that healing. And that's not always the case. It would be interesting for you to share as well, I think, those street corner examples that you shared in the book where it's like, oh, what can I do on my street corner with pollinators? Because these are also simple acts of participation, but they are different to just passively witnessing. Yeah. So what you're talking about, I found out about through a woman named Lisa Hish. And Lisa's journey in her own neighborhood was she and her partner wanted to have some beehives in their backyard have some honey on hand, you know, kind of a backyard, back to the land spirit. And when they were situating their hives, that made them think, well, where are the bees going to gather their pollen from? What are the local neighborhood plants? If you're going to be eating honey, you want it to be healthy, I would presume. And that might've motivated it, but it led to a mapping of the vegetation in the neighborhood. And that led to talking to neighbors and who were curious, well, what are you doing that for? And that led to, well, hey, there are all these street corners that have muddy or cobbled corners at these four-way stops or weedy plants. Well, what if we didn't just passively map what's going on in the neighborhood? What if we took an active role in transforming those corners by planting pollinator habitat? Then it's not just about bees. It's also about butterflies. It's about bats. They put up bat boxes. And so... They got enough interest that they would have three or four families adopt a street corner and then transform that corner. And that led to conversations with children about the hawks in the neighborhood, the owls, the coyotes roaming through. It transformed the way that they looked at their neighborhood from a space that maybe wasn't very hospitable to other creatures to one where they were participating. They were wholly a part of making that space more alive, more biodiverse, healthier. And it all started with just thinking like a bee. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know, and I haven't followed up with Lisa on this, but that led to even bigger and grander schemes of, you know, creating not just street corners, but a pollinator pathway on three different streets, all the way from the river to the lake, you know, in these kind of parallel arrangements. And then she was like, if that's successful, then we can extend this to other neighborhoods citywide. You know, I mean, it just it's a great example of thinking starts small and manageable, something within your orbit of influence. But then it can lead to all sorts of things. And possibly even it connects people to the city's climate change plan and then the nations. And, you know, so all those different scales, I think, are important and it's important because people often ask, well, what can I really do? Where should I direct my energy? It just feels like I'm not doing anything if I'm just tending my own garden or, or whatever it might be, you know, metaphorically or literally. And I think this is an example of where those things aren't mutually exclusive. You know, in fact, we have to be grounded in something in order for us to care deeply about these 
issues that become more abstract the further away we go and are sometimes literally invisible. So we need those things that are physical, that are tactile, that connect us to those larger and critical issues to our future. <laughs> I think it's so important because yeah, absolutely. when we don't feel empowered, when we feel like we don't have agency, we just get stuck. Mm. And many, many city folk, like when I told people I was doing a podcast about the life worlds of other creatures and stuff, they're like, great, but I live in a city and I don't even know how I'm going to be able to relate that much to what you're what you're sharing. <laughs> and that really made my heart hang heavy. And that was why I need to do an episode on this subject, because I can't just speak about agriculture or law or all these things. I need to touch on this issue. Um, and I really appreciate a lot of your work for this particular reason, because even in this conversation, I think we've touched on ways that people can feel connected to that larger paralyzing hyper object. Yeah thing of, oh my God, we're all, you know, F, you know, we're, I'm not going to use a swear word, but things are looking a bit dire. We'll bleep it out with bird song. <laughs> oh, I love that idea. <laughs> That's such a good idea. I'd love to pick off on this thing that you said earlier, thinking as a bee, uh, because one of the provocations of this podcast is, can we see through the eyes of other creatures? Can we become more like them? Or just that sort of empathy co-inhabiting another life world of someone else aside from just being our own human self because we're impoverished i think when we don't know mm -hmm. the life of other creatures it's just like a echo chamber and a mirror all at once you know it just sounds pretty boring in my opinion <laughs> i couldn't agree more <laughs> you have a lot of teachers in your books you know you have the robin the blackbird books papers writings you have the book the blackbird beavers robins herons obviously the coyote who we haven't spoken about yet voles. And you write, you know, at least one piece of what I am advocating here is that other animals can help us think and behave differently. So we might not be able to have access to animal minds, but we do have imagination and the power of observation. So tease that out a little bit. Can we think like other animals or how can we get close to seeing the world through their eyes? Yeah. So I think sometimes the scales have tipped too far, in my opinion, to this fear of anthropomorphism. And there's good reason to be hesitant about attributing other human traits to non-human animals, which is what I mean when I say anthropomorphism or anthropomorphizing, because we don't want to reduce other animals. We don't want to constrain their own ways of perceiving the world. You know, think about a bee seeing an ultraviolet spectrum. Think about a hawk being able to see pinpoint precision two miles away, see a mouse. Think about the speed of a peregrine falcon through the air. Think about all the sort of attributes that other animals have, perceptual attributes that we do not. And so you don't want to say, oh, that bird is dressed in pants and a vest and an ascot. You don't want to reduce them or make them into comic book characters. I mean, unless you're writing a comic and that's the understood context. But what I mean to say is you don't want to infantilize or trivialize their lives. At the same time, I'm a strong advocate in trying to, as best we can, with the limited faculties that we have, understand what other animals are doing, what they're trying to communicate to us. And in part, that's made completely possible by the fact that a lot of our behaviors, especially with other mammals, are mutually intelligible. We recognize when another animal feels pain, when they feel joy, when they are playful. We understand those behaviors. And so that's not a big leap. 
Now, pushing beyond that, you know, I think it also is helpful to follow good old Aldo Leopold's advice and try to think like a mountain. How do we think like a landscape? How do we think like a river? How do we imagine ourselves into these other types of being which would expand our empathic imaginations? One of the great gifts that we have as human beings is the capacity for empathy, the capacity to step into the shoes of others. So there is this this kind of famous philosophical essay, I think back in the 70s, called What's It Like to Be a Bat by a guy named Thomas Nagel. Yeah. And, you know, it caused a big uproar, you know, like having read it, you know, 20 years after when it was written, I was like, what is the big deal here? Like, of course, we can imagine what it's like to be a bat. Of course. Why is this even up for debate? Why is this even like controversial? We don't have the gift of echolocation, most of us at least. You know, I mean, some blind people use it. So there are some crossovers. I think it's just important to emphasize that there are oftentimes more likenesses than differences. So that can affirm our creaturehood, our animality, our part of this greater unity of life. But we also want to acknowledge and respect and I think be curious about and fascinated by the different ways there are of perceiving the world. What's it like to be an elephant and perceive the world through our feet? You know, what's it like to be a bat and not rely so much on our vision? I think those are fascinating things and worth spending time doing. And as you said, help us to break through the echo chamber of our own self-focus or human focus. What's the creature that you feel like you are able to step into the most or one of the creatures that you can step into the most? And maybe you can describe what you've learned by being them. Well, that's a good question. I consider myself a writer. And so by writing about the lives of other creatures, that helps to expand my empathic imagination for how they might move through a landscape how they might perceive that landscape. One person who does this really well is a fellow named Martin Lee Mueller. He wrote a book called Being Sam and Being Human. And it's an academic book, but it's really kind of, I don't know if revolutionary is the right word, but you know there are these passages in there where he is the salmon. He is imagining the world from the salmon's perspective, what that salmon smells, the electrical impulses that ripple along the body of the salmon those different sensory capacities, which is pretty fascinating. So I don't know exactly how to answer that question because I think about it a little bit broadly, and I wouldn't say there's like a specific animal that I try to sort of inhabit their mind space or umbelt their life world. You wrote a poem from the perspective of Coyote that I thought was really cool, really neat. Yeah, <laughs> I was just about to say, obviously, coyotes have been a source of fascination for me. So that's an example of where I try to write my way into that perspective in, in a sense. Isn't that what all writing in terms of whether it's a book, whether it's a screenplay, I think the best writing is an invitation for us to expand our empathy, to expand our imaginations. And so, yeah, I took on the perspective of, of a coyote, but I guess I just want to be modest about that in a way, because I think I'm just a rank beginner. I think there are people who can communicate very well with other beings, other animals, plant life, um, possibly mushrooms, you know, other forms of life. And I'm just pulling at the hem of that garment <laughs> right now. You know, I'm just learning how to let go and be present. I think that your modesty, whether it's warranted or not, is also a good invitation for anyone who's a creative to try to 
do a piece, an art piece, as you said, a screenplay, whatever it may be, from the perspective of another form of life? And what kind of learning do you have to do to get there? What kind of movies do you have to watch? Or, you know, biology books do you have to read to understand, okay, well, where do they nest? Or what are their social relationships? I wish that there was like a fellowship for people who would have to embody some other form of life and they would be allowed to anthropomorphize just because the creative experience of inhabiting other eyes. Just uh, one or two last questions before we wrap. Do you think it's possible to draw life lessons from other species and their ways of being? Have you drawn lessons for your own life from quote-unquote nature? What do you have in mind there? I mean, how specific do you mean? It could be from the most, you know, philosophical level of, as you said, mushrooms and their way of decaying and rotting help us understand what life and death are. And I've had people come on the show who have shared very playful things. But we do have uh, animal teachers along the way of our lives, right? If we choose to listen to them, and your writing was peppered with a few of them, but just curious if by observation and participation in the animal worlds, if they've had you think differently about things in your own life. I mean, I think, I guess I'll start out broadly and see if it leads to specifics. But I mean, broadly speaking, it's increased my care. My love of the world is informed by how much I interact, engage, and build relationships with all the different animals, plants, and landscapes around me. Like It connects me and expands me as a person. And here's a good thing. It's humbling as well to engage with other species because it decenters the default perspective, the default anthropocentric perspective, you know, this tendency to always circle back to what's important for humans. I mean, I think back through my life and I I can think to key moments where that humility was really an overwhelming sensation, you know, that these other lives being lived all around me, that I was one very fractional tiny part of a much larger story and a much larger earth being, you know, um, uh, earth processes that I was simply, you know, to use the metaphor that Tim Ingold used in our kinship session, you know, that I was just a little eddy in the side of a river for a little while before I dissipated back into the greater flow of things. And it's humbling to see all the different ways that life can express itself in bodily form. <laughs> Eight legs, four legs, two legs, no legs, you know, wings and, and furred and finned and feathered and just overwhelmingly beautiful and amazing to me. And I think that that only increases in me over time. The more you, it's like we've been saying, the more you engage, the more it's a kind of virtuous cycle, a positive feedback loop. You know, the more you understand yourself as a creature among many other creatures, the more you can appreciate what it took for you even to be present in this place at this time in the larger geological history of the earth is unbelievably special (laughs) and unbelievably crazy in a way that we're even here having this conversation is ridiculous. You know, the chances of that. So that's a broad way of of putting it. And then there are those other sort of just daily interactions where you're just kind of slapped across the face with something that happens that you've never seen before as you're watching a crow dive bomb and tumble in the air just for the pure joy of it or whatever it is. It can be anything. I mean, the the possibilities are literally endless for what we turn our attention to. But maybe there's something there along what you said, because there is a kind of 
I don't want to use the word progressive, but there is a, an unfolding learning that as you learn baseline behaviors, you learn also what deviates from that. Like when is something kind of special because it's different? Like, oh, that animal is behaving very differently than I've ever seen those animals behave together before. And so the more you get to know, the more you can comprehend or understand or appreciate, I think is maybe the word I'm looking for when things are different for whatever reason. Oh, that was a very, very inspiring way of interpreting, I think, that question. So I thank you for that. Yeah, I was just thinking as you were speaking, it's like it would have been incredibly strange to not have had the presence of an animal or other form of life, right? It could have been um, an element, an elemental being or very rare to not have that in our cultural narrative. And yet today it's like, oh, we'll maybe throw in some creature for like, you know, some effect in the story. But because so many people are living in, in cities and that's where a lot of art and creativity and innovation is coming from and technology is coming from. This question of how we sensitize those who are surrounded by glass and concrete to look beyond that, I think is is really important because otherwise our stories will just, just become more human. And then that is not necessarily a world I would like to live in. We'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for coming on and for sharing your wisdom. I will pepper the show notes with your books and essays so that people can go on an adventure with you and Coyote in Chicago and elsewhere. Uh, but thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Alexa. It was a pleasure talking to you. That was Gavin Van Horn. There was one thing that Gavin said that particularly struck a chord with me when he said that nature connection doesn't have to start with being in awe or somehow having some great epiphany. It can start with these small, everyday intimacies, even in cities, that then help build our capacity for care and imagination. I think that is a wonderful, wonderful invitation. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. And stay tuned for a fresh episode coming out in two weeks' time. It will be our final episode of this series. I cannot believe it's gone by so fast. And we will hone in on wilderness rights and tracking, how nature can be a mentor. So that's it for me today. I would love to hear from you. So do reach out on the lifeworld.earth website where you can also find all of the show notes and an open source library ranging on everything from ecology to technology and life at large. Subscribe to the email list and I will see you back here soon.